Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. Today's episode, The Usurper. Hey everyone, we are back to the main narrative again today, ready to get back into the push and pull of politics and the affairs of nations. And we are also finally into the years that I personally think of as the Dark Ages. So that's exciting. No more introductory material. I get to tell stories that haven't already been gone over by other extremely successful podcasts. Not naming names, of course. Anyway, our subject today is Odoacer. You'll also see it as Odovacer. For a guy who finished off an empire of 500 years duration, he doesn't get a lot of attention. He's overshadowed by the man who replaced him, but he reigned in Italy relatively effectively for 13 years and laid the groundwork for his more famous successor, so I think he deserves an episode to himself, does he not? That having been said, this has been a difficult episode to write. In fact, when I first conceived of the show, I tried to write this episode first and ran into such a wall that I found out I had to rewind a full hundred years in order for the thing to make any sense at all. Nothing of that first draft remains in today's episode. The reasons behind all of that give me a nice little opportunity to talk about the problems of source material a little later on. Odovacer reigned for over a decade, and yet what we have available about him is so thin that I have not been able, in all of the books on my shelf, to find one with a whole chapter devoted to him. Older authors take the lack of source material as evidence of his unpopularity, but there may be something else at play. And I'll come back to that. But keep that idea in the back of your mind as I tell this slightly sparse story with as much detail as I can cobble together. It is, as you may already have noted, a relatively short episode nonetheless. I will almost certainly make up for it next time, if the length of my outline for that episode is anything to go on. Odoacer most probably belonged to a Germanic tribe called the Skiri, who were one of the many tribes that had lived under the umbrella of Attila the Hun's empire. He is sometimes actually called a Hun himself, though he probably wasn't by birth. Odoacer's father, Edeko, was a member of the Skirian royal house called the Tersingli. If that name Edeko is firing some pattern recognition neurons, it's because I've mentioned him a couple of times before. He was one of Attila's secretaries, as well as bodyguard, and a man of some status among the Huns. The argument about whether Edeko was a Skirian or a Hun is, as Herwig Wolfram puts it, as meaningless as arguing about whether someone is a Californian or an American. Odoacer was born around 433, so he would presumably have grown up in Hunnic camps and around Attila's court. He had an older brother named Hunolf, though we don't know how much older. After Attila's death, his empire flew apart with spectacular rapidity, culminating first at the Battle of Nadal in 455, where the domination of Attila's sons was rejected and the Hun Empire was officially dead. Gepid hegemony in the Carpathian Basin was established, and other tribes either had to accept submission or be pushed to the south and west in search of new employment opportunities in the Roman Empire. As is often the case in these scenarios, the newly independent tribes then fought one another for dominance, culminating in a battle at a place called Bolia in 469. The Ostrogothic bands fought against a coalition of other tribes who were supported by the Eastern Roman Emperor Zeno. 
In spite of that imperial support, the coalition was defeated and the Ostrogoths established their dominance in Pannonia on the Roman side of the Danube. Edeco was killed in this battle, and his two sons were forced to make new arrangements for themselves. Hunulf went to the east and found a position in the regular army. He would eventually rise to become the Magister Militum of Illyricum, which was the position once held by Alaric the Goth. The victorious Goths, now in control of Pannonia, threw off the balance of power in the east in ways that would be extremely significant later on, both for the Eastern Empire and for Odoacer personally, but we'll come to that. Odoacer, meanwhile, took a large band of loyal followers, which was a mixed group of Skiri, Rugi, and probably Heralds and some Huns, and went west. They passed through Noricum, and according to the life of St. Severinus, met that holy man at his hermitage in the mountains. Severinus predicted great things for Odoacer, saying, You who are now clad in wretched hides, you shall soon distribute rich gifts to many. I told that story already in episode 13 of last season, The Apostle of Noricum, which I really placed too early. Regret is the hardest thing to live with. Odoacer and his men had very little trouble finding a place in the armies of Italy. Odoacer himself was their natural leader as a member of the royal family, and the only one remaining to them. While not technically a king, it seems, he nonetheless commanded the loyalty of the troops beneath him and rose in reputation until he and his men formed an important part of the Imperial Guard. When the simmering hostility between Anthemius and Rissimer broke out into open conflict in 472, Odoacer took his force over to Rissimer's side, and his defection was one of the triggers for Anthemius's fatal decision to leave Rome and attempt to flee. Odoacer seems to have been one of those characters in history who has that vital combination of prescience and flexibility, as he maintained a position near the top of the military establishment of Italy through the rapid-fire successions of the next few years. After Rissimer's undeserved natural death, Odoacer rode out the rise and fall of Glycarius and Julius Nepos, always managing to stay on the winning side. When Orestes forced Nepos to flee and placed Romulus on the throne, Odoacer was right there, in command of all the Federate forces of Italy. That one's interesting to me, because in Orestes we have another former pillar of Attila the Hun's court. Orestes knew Odoacer's father quite well, probably as a rival. Odoacer would almost certainly have met Orestes in that context when he was young. It makes me wonder what kind of relationship there was between them prior to the events of 476. As I'm sure I've said before, the Federate forces in Italy constituted at least half of the total military force of the peninsula, and possibly more. But they weren't getting paid the same way, they didn't have the same rights, and they couldn't expect the same kind of land grants that the regular army did. Their status was also lower than that of the regular army, in spite of their clear and very real value. Now that will rankle. With the rise of Orestes, there was some hope that the situation could be corrected, but when the troops asked, Orestes couldn't comply. His excuse was that what was left of the empire simply couldn't afford it. The tax base had been whittled down to nothing with the progressive loss of territory, and just about all of the land in Italy, along with the revenue it get generated, was spoken for. Not to mention there had always been a tradition that foreign federates were granted land outside of Italy, never inside of Italy but there was no lands left outside of Italy that Orestes could offer. None of that cut any ice with the army. Whether Odoacer saw an opportunity and put himself at the head of the resulting mutiny, or his troops pushed him to the head of the resulting mutiny, depends on who and what you read. He was certainly a natural choice, as the king of his people, 
The rising was immediately successful. Orestes and the forces loyal to him were caught and defeated at Piacenza, where Orestes was killed. After the victory, the Germanic troops, along with a fair number of the Italian soldiers, proclaimed Odoacer Rex Italia, King of Italy. Romulus, and presumably his handlers, holed up in Ravenna, though what they could have hoped to achieve I can't imagine. Ravenna was an impregnable fortress, surrounded by marshes that would channelize any attempt at an assault. That's all well and good, but when your enemy controls all the territory outside the fortress, and there is no hope of any kind on the horizon, the impenetrable fortress becomes an impenetrable prison. Because there was no help coming. The eastern court remained committed to supporting Julius Nepos, and even if Nepos hadn't been in the picture, a succession crisis had broken out in Constantinople that precluded any direct action. That particular digression will lead us to our next episode, so I'm not going down that road just now. The point is that Romulus and whoever was left around him were up a certain creek with no means of propulsion, and they knew it. There's no record of any resistance being offered when Odoacer turned up with his army outside Ravenna. I have a mental image of the barbarian conqueror striding through the rooms of the Imperial Palace looking for Romulus with his father's blood still on his sword. That part is ridiculous, of course. It's a long way between Piacenza and Ravenna, and I assume Odoacer had time to wipe his sword. When the terrified 11-year-old was found, it was made clear that he would not be killed. Instead, as his last official act, he was compelled to write a letter to Zeno. In it, he abdicated the Western throne, saying there was no longer any need for two emperors. He requested that Odoacer be named patrician, as he had already been acclaimed by the army and the senate as their choice to rule Italy in Zeno's name. The letter was packed up with the imperial robes and diadem, and sent back to Constantinople in the care of a few senators who were there to make the situation perfectly clear. Imagine Zeno's dilemma. In killing Orestes and pushing Romulus aside, Odoacer had, as far as the East was concerned, only overthrown an illegal usurper. He couldn't really be punished for that. He acknowledged the emperor's continued supremacy, and in a triumph of diplomatic doublespeak, tacitly acknowledged Julius Nepos without actually recognizing him as having any direct authority. Odoacer was ruling in Zeno's name, not Nepos's. Also, Odoacer offered, in return for that title of Patricius, to renounce the title of king that had been forced on him, totally forced, by his men. Zeno was none too secure on his own throne at the time, and had to accept the situation. In spite of emissaries from both Nepos and Syagrius, who you may remember up there in northern Gaul, who arrived very shortly to register their disgust at the situation. And he had to accept it in spite of his own temperament. I'll talk about Zeno in much more detail in the next episode, but just letting things go was not really in his personal toolbox. Romulus and his mother were sent off to exile in Campania, by tradition to a villa outside Naples, with a pension that allowed him to live as a member of the senatorial class, so not a small amount of money. It's possible that he is the same person named Romulus who is mentioned later in passing around 511, when he would have been about 45 or 46. So it's not unreasonable to believe that the last Roman emperor lived a full life of comfortable obscurity and died in his own bed, and that has to be counted as some kind of achievement. So what exactly had happened? There's an argument to be made that the answer is not much. If Odoacer had set up his own puppet emperor, 
he would have then just simply appended himself onto the end of a long list of military strongmen who ruled the empire through an imperial cipher. He would be no different from Stilicho, Aetius, or Rissimer. But he didn't do that. He ruled directly. The title of patrician placed him nominally in the hierarchy of the Roman Empire, and that could smooth things over with the upper crust of the Italian nobility, which made up the Senate. But it was clear that Odoacer took orders from no one, and when he gave orders, it was in his own name. Julius Nepos, by the way, never renounced his claim to the Western Purple, and he was acknowledged as the legitimate ruler by Constantinople up until his death. That would be a threat if anyone could ever get their act together and raise some kind of military force against Italy, but for a long while, nobody could. The presence of Julius Nepos in Dalmatia was, in another way, an advantage to Odoacer. Nepos was over there, with absolutely no practical authority, but Odoacer could and did pay lip service to him as an emollient when the Senate or Constantinople seemed to be getting antsy. He even minted coins in Nepos' name, but in reality Nepos was pretty much totally ignored. To the Senate, he, Odoacer, was patricius, and they gave their obedience to him under that title. And to the army, he was a tribal king, and he received their obedience under that one. I want to talk a little bit about those senators, and specifically their attitude towards this whole thing, because it gives me a chance to explore a question that has been bothering me for months. When the Roman Empire in the West came to an end, what did people think about it? In the last episode of last season, I suggested, of course, that people noticed. They're not stupid. Whether it mattered was probably another matter entirely. But in the case of the Italian aristocracy, there's an interesting case of two brains happening. The central thing to remember is that the people of Italy did not wake up on the morning of September 5th, 476, stand up, stretch, and say, you know, suddenly garum seems really disgusting. I think I'd rather have some nice marinara. And not just because the tomato wouldn't be introduced for over a thousand years. No, they went to bed thinking of themselves as Romans, and woke up the next morning still thinking of themselves as Romans, because Romanitas was a way of life and a way of thought, independent of whatever the political arrangements were. Romanitas was, in the self-conception, ruled by reason, developed through education, which prepared the Roman to live under rational Roman law. That was the fundamental difference between a Roman and a barbarian. A barbarian would always be ruled by his passions and unable to understand the real freedom that could be had by embracing rationality. None of that went away just because some 11-year-old had been sent off to the country. So the senators and bishops that were the backbone of Italian and indeed most other formerly Roman societies were able to rationalize that while the imperium the military power of absolute command, had passed into new hands or disappeared entirely. The res publica, the community of the Romans living under rational law and with divine favor, remained to them as their patrimony. Put another way, the empire may have withered, but Romanitas remained. Any new leaders who arrived in Italy, no matter where they came from, would have to appeal to and even demonstrate that Romanitas if they were going to have the support of the Senate or the Church. Odoacer seems to have done a credible enough job at this, though I have no doubt that his accession was accompanied by the sort of carrot-and-stick demonstrations you would expect. Jordanes, our old friend, mentions that one senator named Brasilla was executed in order to intimidate the other aristocrats, and if that's all it took, then it doesn't say much for their collective backbone. He did have to do something, 
because he had been made king by the soldiers and still had the same problem that Orestes had had. How to settle these men in such a way as to avoid too much direct rancor was a problem he needed to have solved. Unfortunately, the details of how exactly this transition, which would have represented a fairly massive transfer of property, are completely lost to us. It would have been impossible, though, without the administrative apparatus and skills of the senatorial and clerical classes. Odoacer certainly understood the value of the senatorial class to him, and he issued coins marked S.C. for Senatus Consultio, the first time such coinage had been struck since the 3rd century. He regularly nominated Italian senators as consuls, still a mark of high status in connection to Constantinople, though no longer carrying any official duties. The church, too, had to be kept on side, not just because here was essentially the mass media of the day, but because already bishops were as much landowners and players in politics as their aristocratic cousins, often quite literally cousins. In spite of his personal Arian beliefs, Odoacer seems to have had no problem getting the Orthodox Church on his side. There's not much hint of any contemporary objection to his heretical beliefs, and even less evidence that he moved against orthodoxy in any way. But the soldiers were the heart and soul of Odoacer's power. Lands were granted to the Federate soldiers, and Odoacer ensured that their status would never be overshadowed by the old regular army again, by dissolving the regular army. The Federates, the outsiders, who had been the majority and the backbone of military force for some time, now became the only military force in Italy, and the Germanic warriors were both de jure and de facto masters of the Roman heartland. Notions of Romanitas notwithstanding, that right there, for me, that marks the end of the Roman Empire. All of this obviously would have resulted in huge and fascinating social and economic changes as the top layers of society reoriented themselves to the new realities. There must have been thousands of little micro-deals made dealing with the transference of all that land and position and money and power and rights, but we will never have any of the details of it. The new realities were just as evident on the international stage. Odoacer scored a very early diplomatic victory in his negotiations with Gaiseric, the king of the Vandals. The island of Sicily has loomed large in our narrative as the local breadbasket of Italy, and its loss to the Vandals had been a severe blow to the Romans. Somehow, Odoacer managed to induce the return of most of the island to Italian control. How and why the extremely savvy Gaiseric agreed to this is another mystery. He was getting on by 476, well into his 80s, and he would die early the next year. It's possible he recognized that his successors would be unable to hold the island, so he gave it up under the best possible terms he could get. Those terms included a reasonably large recurring tribute payment and the maintenance of a toehold on the western end of the island, so it's not so difficult to see the wisdom of Geyseric's move. Further west, there was less that Odoacer could do. Yurik of the Visigoths appears to have made a play to extend his control over Provence, but he was beaten back by a pair of Odoacer's generals, and the Alpine border was confirmed. Odoacer acknowledged Yurik as an independent king, and that was that. In 1480, the situation shifted. When Julius Nepos was assassinated, probably in Salona, by two members of his own retinue. No scholar I've read comes right out and says that Odoacer was involved in the murder, and to me the fact that there's not much debate about it just highlights the void of information. But to me, the odds seem about 50-50. 
If he was involved, the trigger might have been word of a plan, still in its infancy, to put Nepos back on the throne with the help of the Pannonian Goths. But the plan fizzled upon Nepos' murder. Regardless of the facts, Odoacer played the role of Avenger with Gusto. In the power vacuum left in Nepos' absence, Rugians and Goths looked to make plays for the territory. Odoacer rushed in with his army, defeated the Rugians, and arrested and executed Nepos' murderers, who probably felt a little dumb at that minute. Don't let yourself be the patsy, folks. It never works out. Once all of that was done, Odoacer just hung around. Dalmatia had always technically been in the western sphere of influence anyway, though in practice authority had passed back and forth between Rome and Constantinople. And it was actually the object of many of Stilicho's civil wars with the East all those episodes ago. For a long while, Dalmatia's governors were effectively independent, but Nepos's death put a halt to that. Odoacer reasserted western control, and Dalmatia was incorporated into the Kingdom of Italy. And still, Constantinople could do nothing. Though they had made no headway in Dalmatia, the Rugians remained a problem. Occupying territory perilously close to the passes through the Julian Alps, meaning the land route between Italy and the east, they ranged along the northern edge of the Alps and the Danube Valley without much opposition. These are the barbarians who were represented in the life of St. Severinus. Eventually Odoacer had had enough, and in 487 or 88 he led an expedition against them. He defeated and captured their king, named Philetheus, and returned with him to Italy. But in the ensuing chaos, it became clear that he would be unable to hold on to the territory. The far parts of Noricum and Raetia were evacuated and abandoned to, ab- to barbarian control. Communities like the one established by St. Severinus relocated to Italy. In that case, they founded a church and abbey in Naples, which remain there to this day. In a very real way, Odoacer's rule in Italy depended on the weakness or distraction of his neighbors. He had the cooperation of the aristocracy, but not their love. The army was his, but probably could prove flexible should a better option appear on the horizon. We, as usual, have no knowledge of how the vast body of the populace felt about all that had been going on, but if I had to guess, I would say they were probably just happy that people weren't trampling on their crops for once. He was living on borrowed time, and it couldn't last forever. Eventually, political conditions in the east would shift, and Constantinople would be able to make a move. And that's exactly what happened in 490. With the support of Zeno, the Pannonian Goths invaded Italy to usurp the usurper and reclaim Italy for the empire. Well, that was probably what Zeno had in mind, anyway. He was about half right, as it would turn out. That story, the story of Theodoric the Amal, a.k.a. Theodoric the Ostrogoth, a.k.a. Theodoric the Great, We'll begin next time. We will also, at the same time, reach the end of the reign of Odoacer Tursilingus. No spoilers, but it will be messy. There will be some very unhappy banquet staff. I started this episode saying that the material available to the historian is thin gruel. That wasn't an accident. It wasn't just the vagaries of time. We can't really know whether Odoacer was a good king or a tyrant or something in between because of the man who replaced him. Next time I'll introduce Theodoric the Great in much greater detail and talk about his early life and the twists and turns that brought him to Italy. It's proper history. It's a narrative. And that's because when he came to challenge Odoacer, he won. The cliché that history is always written by the victors, well, not always true, by the way, it's written by the people who can write, 
and those aren't always the same people. But in the case of Theodoric versus Odoacer, it's as true as it can possibly be. Theodoric would have three decades to cement his legacy, justify his actions, and completely overwrite the story of the man he had replaced. The old perspective on Odoacer is that the absence of sources is evidence of his unpopularity and failure, but I don't really buy that. Theodoric was a successful king, who consciously used the administrative and cultural heritage to his own advantage. He had personal experience with that heritage from a youth spent in Constantinople, but he also had the substrate of an administration in Italy that had learned how to work with this new kind of leader. The Roman state had learned to work with the Germanic king, while maintaining its own self-image and efficiency. Had Odoacer been ineffective, he would have probably ended up on the point of some other adventurer's spear much earlier. Had Odoacer been a tyrant, he had 13 years, plenty of time to tear the heart out of the Roman system for his own short-term benefit, which is what tyrants do. Neither thing happened. Odoacer left Theodoric an armature, onto which Theodoric could build his own sculpture. And in return, the Scyrian received erasure and obscurity. I hope that I've done something to correct that injustice. Some business before I go. First and foremost, warm thanks in one of those endearing two-handed handshakes to Vic, Tim, AG, Otzi, and Charlie, who all donated through Kofi.com, which is apparently supposed to rhyme with no fee. Whatever. Thank you all. And Charlie, all I can say is, dude, seriously, thank you. One thing I didn't talk about when I was setting up the season in the last episode is the little matter of scheduling. Last season, the release day changed several times, and there were a few times when we there were long gaps between episodes. Sometimes I had a good reason, sometimes I really didn't. I can't promise absolute consistency going forward. This whole project is still fundamentally a hobby, and I'm a father of three with all that goes into that. But what I can promise is that episodes will consistently drop on Monday mornings. If I have a really good week, it's possible I might be able to pull off two Mondays in a row, but I suspect the average will be closer to every other week. I'll try not to let it get any longer than that, except around the holidays. Thank you all so much for your patience with me. If you haven't already, take a second to rate the show on whatever podcast app you're using, and make sure you're subscribed to it there as well. That can make a big difference in visibility for me, and is personally very gratifying. If your platform of choice lets you leave a review, I'd love to hear your feedback. Thank you to Rancid Agro, who left a review on Apple Podcasts during the break. Thanks very much, Mr. and Mrs. Grow, though I do have to question your word choice. That is surely a typo. There's also the Facebook page, which has grown quite a bit recently. It's very exciting. I suppose I should start posting stuff on there a bit more. But I'm always nervous about clogging up people's feeds. Twitter, which I'm streaky at, but occasionally I'll unleash a little flurry, and the contact page at www.darkagespod.com to send an email directly to me. I love seeing messages pop up on any of those places. Just search for Dark Ages Pod, all one word, on any of those, and you should find me. Unless it's hate mail, in which case, go take a shower and a few deep breaths before you hit send. I promise you'll feel better. Or, you know what, brush your teeth. You'd be surprised how much that helps. Okay, that's all for now. Until next time, take care.